down to Transformation Station. You can uh, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Um, just to say this before we jump in, uh, humble worship leaders are hard to find, and our family's been here a year ago, uh, Friday. We've been, been in Boston for a year, and uh, it's been a, a joy to be uh, served by Micah and his leadership and his humility and his desire to center us on Jesus every Sunday. And that uh, we also have five kids, uh, so we've been served well by Carrie and her leadership. So thank you, uh, Micah. We are looking for a worship leader in Arlington. Um, you said you don't know what's next, so just something to pray about. Um, but uh, John chapter 17. Again, my name's Kevin Sanders. I'm the uh, church planting apprentice here at Redemption Hill. We're planting in Arlington, and uh, just a joy to be here with you this morning and open up the word together. Uh, let's, let's read this. This is a passage of scripture that's really a window into relationship of Jesus and the Father that um, I think will minister to us in a, in a unique way this morning. So if you have one of the Bibles you grabbed on the back, it's page 903, but this is God's Word, John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them. They've come to know in truth, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Famous 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, Some brethren pray by the yard, but true prayer is measured by weight and not by length. Maybe, maybe you know uh, brothers or sisters who pray by the yard. They pray lengthy, long prayers. But what Spurgeon is saying is that true, genuine prayer that doesn't necessarily have to do with the length of it, but, but how deep and weighty it is. And this prayer of Jesus, commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer, is actually a brief prayer. We just read it in about three minutes. It's about 650 words. Yet the depth of this prayer that Jesus prays for himself and for his disciples and for all believers, including us, is enough that we could spend and will spend eternity trying to fully understand it. One commentator and pastor, Scotty Smith, says, No earthly feasts can even faintly compare with the nourishment that we are given in Jesus' high priestly prayer. No earthly feast can even faintly compare with what we're given here. And so I say that to say that in our next few moments, we will not be able to plunge all of the depths of what we just read. But my prayer is that you will see what Jesus' prayer shows us, which is that he is committed to the glory of God, the good of his disciples, and the future of the church. And my hope is that we would be motivated as we hear Jesus praying for us, that we would be motivated to pursue the very things he prays for us. Now, why is this called the high priestly prayer? That's important to, to start because in, in the subheading of your Bible, you probably have a, a title that says like that, the prayer of Jesus or the high priestly prayer. But that phrase high priest actually isn't in any of these 26 verses. So why is it commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer? Well, a high priest, if you read through the Old Testament and read about the people of God, a high priest was someone who was appointed by God to be the go-between from God's people to God himself. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is approaching God on behalf of his people. He is approaching God as one who is about to be the sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he is, though he's about to go to the cross himself, he is praying most of the prayer for his people. 
And so verse 1 gives us the setting here before we jump in. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words. And so you think back to the last few chapters. Chapters 13 to chapter 16 of uh, the Gospel of John is commonly referred to as the farewell discourse. We've been in those chapters for the past several weeks. And Jesus is talking to his disciples Uh, His public ministry is over. He's about to go to the cross. He knows he's about to leave. And he is telling them these things. He's teaching them these things. And he says, now, these words are finished. I'm going to lift my eyes to heaven. And I'm going to approach the Father in prayer. And he says, Father, the hour has come. So if you've been paying attention at all in the Gospel of John, you know that the hour has been coming for a while. And Jesus has pointed out certain times that it's not yet his hour, but the hour is coming. The hour is the time where he will give his life on the cross for the sins of mankind. He's saying the time is here. And so we get this window At the end of Jesus' public ministry, right before the next chapter, you'll see it next week, we jump into the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in the cross, and he is pleading to God on behalf of his people. And so three things Jesus prays for here that we want to draw out. Here's the first thing. Jesus prays for the glory of God. Jesus prays for the glory of God. So in the first five verses of this chapter, he's praying for himself. That's how he starts. He's not praying for anyone else yet, not his disciples, not the future church. And he really makes only one request here. Look at verse 1. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. It's one request with one purpose attached to it. So he's saying, God, now glorify me. What What does that mean? How is Jesus going to be glorified. Well, if, if you think back to John chapter 3, verse 14, and even John chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus talks about a day is coming where he's going to be lifted up. He's going to be exalted. But he's talking about being exalted in a way that we may not think about being exalted. He's talking about the cross. He's going to be glorified on the cross. He's talking about his impending death. Now, that might give us pause and say, how does something as brutal as someone dying on a cross glorify that person? This doesn't seem to make sense in our culture. We have a a skewed view of, of glory, right? Glory to us means no pain, no suffering, only good things. So how is it glorious for someone like Jesus to be abandoned by all of his friends to be forsaken, to be given a false trial, and to be brutally murdered on a cross. How is that glorious? Yet, in actuality, the center of our faith as followers of Jesus Christ is the cross. And the cross is actually the perfect display of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. How does that work? Well, because when Jesus dies on a cross... We see both the perfect justice of God and the perfect mercy of God on display in a way that we can't see anywhere else. Because Jesus, who was fully sinless, both fully God and fully man, went to the cross in our place and he took the punishment for our sin. That's the justice of God. That's what happened on the cross. God's wrath and justice is poured out. And God is a holy God. He cannot just ignore sin or sort of sweep it under the rug. It must be dealt with. 
The wages of sin is death. So when we look at the cross, we see Jesus dying in our place, and that is the justice of God, his payment for sin. But it's not just justice. It's not just wrath. It's also grace and mercy. Because when we look to the cross, we see that though we should have been on that cross, Jesus is there for us so that we could have life. So if you want to see the glory of Jesus, if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to see the perfect display of his justice and mercy and the perfect display of his righteousness and his grace, then you look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows this. This is why he says in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. What was the joy? God is glorified. And so Jesus is lifted up in this way. He receives glory when he dies on the cross. But it's not only that he died. Listen, if Jesus just died and stayed dead, there would be no glory in the cross. Jesus receives glory not just because he died on the cross, but because three days later he rose from the grave defeating sin and death. So how does God answer this prayer of Jesus, glorify your son? One way he answers it is by the cross and the empty grave of Jesus Christ. Now this is, though it's kind of hard for us to think of how death on a cross means glory, we, we sort of get this as human beings made in the image of God. This is why we all love underdog stories. Think of, think of Rocky, the first one, or really every sports movie ever made, right? One of the the greatest things about Rocky is that he doesn't win. You guys remember that, right? If you've seen the movie. Apollo wins at the end. Rocky actually loses, sort of. He loses the boxing match, but it sort of looks like a defeat if you want to be technical. But in actuality, sort of the point of the story is who's the real winner there? Rocky. And so when we think of these sort of underdog stories that we see in books and in movies... That resonates with us. Why? Because deep down we know that in weakness there is strength and in seeming defeat there is victory. And at the cross there is simultaneously the humiliation of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus. Because he's lifted up and as he says back in John chapter 12, so that he may draw all men to himself. So Jesus is glorified in the cross. But but look again at verse 1. The purpose of him praying this prayer is not just for himself. He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even in this moment, Jesus is committed to taking the glory that he receives and reflecting it back to the Father. He is solely committed to the glory of God. That's his prayer. Then Jesus goes on and And he reflects on his work. And we see how he glorified God while he was on earth ministering to his disciples and those around him. Verse 3 says that they would know, he gives a definition of eternal life. I've given eternal life. What is eternal life? That they would know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He's saying that's what I've done on earth. I have given them eternal life. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, know this, you can have eternal life. Jesus explains it very clearly for us. How? You must know God, and the only way to truly know God is through Jesus Christ. 
And so we, we think back to this farewell discourse where Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through the Son. Or John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal, everlasting life. And listen to what he says here. He doesn't just talk about a destination when he defines eternal life. You see that? Look at verse 3. What's eternal life? That they would know God. Eternal life isn't primarily about where we're going. Though that's certainly a joyous thing to think about. Those who have trusted in Christ will spend eternity with Him. But it's primarily about a person. It's about knowing God. Jesus is saying, while I was on earth, I made eternal life known to them. Then he goes on and reflects of this salvation. Verse 2, he says that he's made this known to all of those the Father has given. So who receives eternal life? According to Jesus here, those whom the Father has sovereignly given to the Son. And so hear this, two, two people I'm talking to here. If you're not a Christian, you can know eternal life through Jesus Christ by trusting in him who paid for your sins on the cross and defeated sin and death. But if you are a Christian, verse 2, know this, the only reason you're a Christian is not because of any work of your own, but it's because God has given you to Jesus Christ. Emphasizes the sovereignty of God here. Sovereign means total control of God in salvation. Here, the way Paul explains it in Ephesians 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Jesus goes on to say, verse 4, that he's glorified the Father in his earthly ministry. I've done what you've called me to do. And then verse 5, he repeats his request while looking to the future. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So when Jesus prays for his glory... His glory that he receives on the cross and and by defeating sin and death and the glory that he will return to. He's not asking for a new position. He's simply saying, God, return me to the place when I finish the work here where I was before I came in eternity past. And that is the right hand of the throne of God in the presence of God. Jesus prays in these first five verses for the glory of God, for his own glory, and thus the glory of God. What does this mean to us? I think there's a simple application. It's not about us. Church, the Bible, the gospel, is not primarily about us. Your life, your career, your job, your family, is not primarily about you. It's about the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is not new. This is on every page of the Gospel of John. And I would submit to you on every page of Scripture. But here's the encouraging thing. Though it's not about us, that doesn't mean we don't play a part in the story. This is where we see the second thing that Jesus prays for. He prays for the good of his disciples. Though Jesus is committed to his glory and the glory of God... Really, just those first few verses are about him. He spends the rest of the prayer, verses 6 through 26, pleading to God on behalf of his people. We see the heart of Christ in this. In verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, 
but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus is, is clear in verse 9. This is sort of a unique verse for us because you would think when Jesus prays, he prays generally for all people. No, he's very, very clear here. He's not praying for the world. He's not praying for those who are opposed to him and are outside of the family of God. Why not? Well, because Jesus, while he does love the world, John 3, 16, there is a unique and peculiar love and fellowship that Jesus has with his disciples, with his followers. And so he's praying for them. And really, there's only one prayer for those who are of the world, for those who are not in Christ. The only prayer is that they would recognize their sin, turn from their sin, and trust in Jesus. So Jesus is clear here that he's praying for his disciples. And we, we get such a glimpse of the heart of Christ for his people here. Think about this for a moment. He's about to die a brutal death. He knows he's about to be betrayed by one who has already left. He's about to be abandoned by these 11 who are his closest friends, completely and totally alone. Yet what does he do? He selflessly prays for his people. He goes to God on their behalf. What a savior we have. And so what does he pray for them? The first thing he prays for, for his disciples and by way of extension for us is for their protection. Look at verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. In verse 12, Jesus says, while they're here on earth, I've protected them. I've protected my disciples except for Judas who was set apart by God, uh, Scripture prophesied that he would betray Jesus. But other than him, I have kept them here. Verse 14, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, verse 15, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's praying for their keeping, for their protection. And, and listen, this implies that really the main priority for the disciples is mission. He's saying, I'm not praying that you would keep them so separated from the world that they're never going to face any trouble. No, no, they have a mission to accomplish. I'm praying that you would protect them from evil. If you're a parent in here, you know the temptation at times to be the overprotective parent. Right, like, wouldn't it be great just to put knee pads and elbow pads and wrist guards on your kid and a helmet everywhere you drive? Because then if they, even if you got in an accident, they would never get hurt. Or, you know, if you never let them go outside, they'll never get sick. Or, you know, you can, I know those are extremes, but we can have this sort of overprotective sense with our children. That's not what Jesus has here. He has more of a sense of a general who deeply loves his troops, deeply loves his army, deeply cares for them but he's not going to keep them back because they've got to go on a mission. So what does he do? He, he equips them for the mission. He knows that they're going to face troubles. The world is going to hate them just as they hated Jesus. And really what Jesus is praying here is a promise that he already made back in John chapter 10, verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus prays for his disciples that they would be kept by the Father as they live their lives on mission for Jesus. They're going to be in the world. There's going to be trials. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be temptations. But God, would you keep them and would you protect them? 
And this should be a comfort to us. Listen, you may be in here and you may be prone to doubt whether or not you are a Christian because of some trials that you face or because of some sin that you struggle with. Listen to what this means. If you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, you can never be taken from the hands of the Father. You will be kept. And in other words, you did nothing to gain your salvation. Therefore, you can do nothing to lose your salvation. And Jesus is praying for this promise that he has already made for his disciples. And one of the beautiful things about this is we see it on display in Peter. Peter was a man who Jesus told him, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But, he tells Peter, I've prayed for you. And Peter endures. Judas doesn't endure. But Peter endures. Why? Because he has been in Christ and he's been kept by the Father. It should be a comfort for us. So Jesus prays for their protection. He also prays for their joy. Look at verse 13. But now I'm coming to you that these things I speak in the world, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This points us back to John chapter 15. If you haven't, one of my favorite sermons in the Gospel of John is, is Tanner's, Pastor Tanner's sermon on John 15. How's your connection? Go back and listen to that. In 1511, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus longs for his disciples to know the joy of communion with God that he has enjoyed. Now, there's an objection here. You may say, wait a second, didn't you just say that Jesus is all about his glory and all about the glory of of God? So how can Jesus be all about the glory of God, all about the glory of himself, and also about our joy? Which one is it? Is it he's committed to the glory of God? God or is he committed to our joy? And the answer to that question is yes. Those aren't mutually exclusive things. In fact, Jesus knows and wants us to know that the the one way to experience true joy is to be committed to the glory of God. That's where true joy comes from. Or maybe you've heard John Piper say, I know it's been quoted here before, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. See, that's one of the beauties of this prayer is that Jesus is fully committed to the glory of God, but he's also fully committed to our joy. And those things aren't mutually exclusive. Jesus desires, he he longs for his disciples to know this. Why? Because he knows that hardships are coming. And listen, there is a huge difference between true joy in Christ in circumstantial happiness, right? Circumstantial happiness means as long as everything's going well, I'll be okay. God, you're good. Job's going well. Family's going well. No, there's no problems here. I have enough money in, in the bank. But then the moment something happens, the joy is gone. That's circumstantial happiness. That's not true biblical joy. That's not the joy that Jesus is praying for here. True joy is able to withstand against the storms of life. This is why Jesus could say in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. This is what led the Apostle Paul to say, for me to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. If I'm here and I'm living, that's great. I'm living on mission for Jesus. I'm fully committed to his glory. If you kill me, no big deal. I go get, I go get to be with Jesus. See, that's an untouchable joy that Jesus is praying for, for his disciples. And so you can actually ask yourself that question. Do you have that kind of joy? Do you have true joy or do you have circumstantial happiness? Just, just do this sort of test in your mind. One way to, to evaluate is to say, what would happen if I lost this? Would I despair so much? It doesn't mean there's not going to be any pain. But would I despair so much that I turn my back on God? Maybe you're in that situation now and know this. There is a greater joy than circumstantial happiness. The joy in Christ means this. You could lose everything tomorrow, but you would still have the one thing you need. And that's Jesus. And so Christ prays this for his disciples because he knows that their lives are going to be taken away. He knows they're going to be persecuted for us. Whatever it is, storms will come, whether it's cancer, whether it's persecution, whether it's job loss. Where will our joy be? And Jesus goes on. He prays not just for their protection, not just for their joy, but for their holiness. Look at verse 16. It says, They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What does this word sanctify mean? It means simply this, to set apart from evil for the purpose of holy living. So Jesus is praying, God, would you take these disciples, would you take these followers that you've given me out of the world, and would you set them apart from evil? Would you make them holy so that they would be equipped for holy living? That's the purpose Jesus gives in verse 18. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father into the world to accomplish salvation, the disciples are sent into the world by Jesus. Therefore, Jesus, just as he was set apart by the Father, Jesus is now saying, set them apart so that they can be equipped for the mission. So in, in other words, mission demands holiness. If we're going to live on mission for Jesus Christ as disciples of Jesus, we need to be set apart from the world. And I would say that this is one of the biggest struggles of the church today. I don't mean this church specifically, I mean Big C Church, is that we've neglected holiness, and oftentimes in an effort to reach the world, so much so that we end up looking like the world and we hinder the mission of God. I was a youth pastor, and um, teenagers drink lots of soft drinks, and so I would often buy um, two liters, you know, every Wednesday night, buy two liters, and we had a youth budget, so I'm, you know, I'm trying to save money, so I would go to the store, and instead of Dr. Pepper, I would get Dr. Thunder, right, or instead of Mountain Dew, I would get Mountain Lightning, or whatever it's called, and it's same color, same logo, right, and I would take it back, take it to the youth group, and, and you know how teenagers are, and so they would drink it, and they would complain, why? This isn't the real thing, it sort of looks like it, but it's a cheap imitation of the real thing. No matter how much you say, oh, it's the same. No, you can still taste the difference, especially if you're an aficionado of soft drinks. When we as Christians neglect 
holiness, when we're not set apart, when we're not fighting our sin, we're not, we're not, we're not pursuing Jesus, when we look just like the world, we offer a cheap imitation of Christianity and we hinder the mission of God. So Jesus is praying that his disciples, and by way of extension us, would be set apart for the purpose of mission. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't pray for their popularity or that they'll be liked. He prays that they would be holy. Because when God's people are holy, they reflect the character of God and the mission of God advances in this world. So Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. That's the, the means by which we are made holy is the word of God. Now listen, don't misunderstand. Please don't misunderstand holiness here. I'm, what we're not saying is that what you need to do is you need to go and have this sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality when it comes to faith and everything's dependent upon you and what Jesus cares about most is what you do, 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 do. That's not what we're saying. Nor, nor am I saying that you just let go and let God. And hey, Jesus prayed for my holiness, so I don't really need to, to do anything. I just need to sit back and let Jesus do his, his work. No, those are, those are both ends of the spectrum that are not biblical. What we need to pursue is what one author, Jerry Bridges, calls dependent responsibility. When we think about what it means to live lives that are holy for the glory of God and for the sake of his mission to be sanctified and set apart, we need to be utterly dependent upon God. Any good in me or in you is because of the grace of God in us. It's not because of our own strength. Yet at the same time, we are responsible by grace to carve out time for the word and prayer, to discipline ourselves, to share the gospel with others, to guard our minds and our ears and our eyes from what we see what we watch on the internet or TV. We are responsible for those things by grace. It's a dependency upon God and a responsibility that God has given us. And that's what we're called to pursue. Totally dependent upon Christ is simultaneously responsible for the holiness in our lives. And Jesus prays this because he knows that when we're set apart, we reflect his character. We're sent. We're not taken out of the world. We're in the world. Therefore, we need to pursue holiness to reflect him to this world. And then number three, after praying for his disciples, Jesus prays for the future of the church. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So he's praying for future believers. Those who will hear the word of the apostles, will read scripture, will hear the gospel proclaimed, and believe in him. He's praying for those of us who are here that know and trust in Jesus. What an encouragement to us. And that tells us, by the way, that everything we just talked about, what Jesus prayed for his disciples, also applies to us. But for this future church, he prays two primary things. He prays first for their unity. Look at verse 21 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us. So he doesn't just say, God, make them together. He says, make them one, make them unified, just as you, Father, and I are unified. So what does that mean? That's a theme we've seen all throughout John as well, the unity of the Father and the Son. One commentator says this, it's a unity of common mind and purpose 
in unqualified mutual love, in a sustained, comprehensive togetherness in mission. So just as Jesus and the Father were singular in their commitment to love one another and to accomplish the mission of of God, Jesus prays that all future believers, that the church would be unified as well for the sake of this mission. And, And the result is evangelistic, meaning the gospel goes forth. Still in verse 21, he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know. Church, when we live unified as brothers and sisters in Christ, coming together around the gospel, despite our our backgrounds and our differences, we display God to the world around us. Jesus gives an illustration in Matthew 5.14 that the people of God are supposed to be as a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. When John Winthrop in 1630, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, was writing a sermon called A Model of Christian Charity that was meant to be put forth as the guidelines for this this new colony, he says this, We must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are on us. The same is true of the church. The greatest way, one of the greatest ways we display Christ to the world around us is by living in a common unity. What's one of the values of Redemption Hill? Community. Where do we get that word? A common unity. What's our common unity? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I think of our little church plant, Redeeming Grace in Arlington. We've been meeting weekly in community groups since January. And we we come together and we have people from all different countries, from different musical tastes. I mean, country, hip-hop, metal. I won't tell you which one I am. We've got married, unmarried, engaged, all, all, all sorts of different jobs, backgrounds, pay grades, interests. None of us knew each other a year ago. Why would we come together? It's not necessarily a common interest. It's not that we have the same hobby. It's not that we all went to the same college. No, it's that every single one of us is in desperate need of a Savior. And we found that Savior in Jesus Christ. You see what the gospel does? The gospel brings people together from all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of different socioeconomic statuses and brings them together as the people of God. And when the world sees that, they say something's different here. Puts God on display. And that's the unity that Jesus prays for. Not just individually, though. Think about it church-wide. What's it going to take to reach Boston? Did you hear Pastor Tanner talk about Vision 2020 and talk about seeing more people come to Christ and more churches planted? That's not, that's not what one church can do. Churches together, coming together around the gospel and the mission of God to reach a city like Boston. Jesus prays for that. Why? So that the world may look and see what's going on and know that they've been sent by the Father. It's this evangelistic unity. And then lastly, Jesus prays for us to see his glory. Look at verse 24. He says, That they may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so we really end where we began, don't we? Jesus begins the prayer 
with the glory of Jesus, the glory of God. Christ is glorified and we who trust in him will one day, as Jesus prays, when this life is over, we'll be with him and we will be able to see his glory in perfection. The glory of Christ the bookends of this passage. And then in verse 26, he promised that he will continue to make God known to his people. And so as we reflect on this prayer, there's a lot here. One question we may have is, is this prayer answered? Did God the Father answer Jesus' prayer? The answer is yes. When we look at Hebrews 12.2, the author tells us that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Where is Jesus now? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Which means that God answered the prayer of the Son back in verse 5, that I would be returned to my glory that I had before the world existed. But do you know what Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father? Hebrews 7.25 tells us, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a joy. Jesus didn't stop in verse 26 pleading for us. He went to the cross, purchased salvation for all who would believe in him, defeated sin and death by rising from the grave, ascended into the heavens, And at the right hand of the throne of God, right now, if you are in Christ, he is praying for you. That should comfort us. For those of you who are here and you're you're not a Christian, look at verse 25 of Hebrews 7 again. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Hear this. You can know the love of of Jesus who intercedes continually for his people, now if you would draw near in faith in Christ and turn from your sin. What what a joy this is for us. And so this prayer shows us that he is committed to the glory of God, the good of his disciples and the future of his church. He's praying for us now. And this should both comfort us And encourage us to pursue all these things that he's praying for. It should comfort us when we feel like we're too distant from God. It should also encourage us to pursue his glory. To pursue being kept by the Father. To pursue holiness, joy, unity in the mission of God. It should cause us to press on by grace and fearless commitment to these things. And as we close, I'll leave you with the words of Robert Murray McShane, who said this, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Let's pray. Father, you have given us in Jesus everything we need. We could not approach you on our own because of our sin and your holiness. And so you put forward your son. Perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. Our great high priest. Who not only pleaded for us in prayer. 
but gave his life for us on the cross. And so God, we we ask now that you would take this word, that your spirit would take this word and press it deep within our hearts, that you would give us a sense of awe of the salvation we have in Jesus, our high priest. That you would comfort those of us who maybe feel distant. We feel like you're about to drop us out of your hand. Would you show us that that will not happen? Would you show us that you're able to save to the uttermost? And God, by grace, lead us to pursue your glory. Lead us to pursue holiness, to pursue joy in you, to pursue unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ so that you would be magnified in this world. As we look forward to the day when we will enjoy your glory perfectly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.